If you're not already turning there, please be turning with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. And as we begin, pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we come before you. And we thank you, O Lord, for your word. We thank you for the promises that we just got through singing. Singing of the birth of our Lord and Savior and our treasure, Jesus Christ the Lord. Father, what a joy it is to sing those songs, to recount all that you've done for us in Christ, singing the gospel. And Father, now as I stand before your people and open your word before them, I pray that you'd be with us, that you would fill us with your spirit. May you fill me with your spirit and enable me to to preach and to proclaim the gospel with clarity to them. And may you enable them to hear with open ears and with open hearts, receiving it with joy. And may we, as James writes to us in his letter, may we be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well as we hear these things. Father, may your purposes be accomplished this morning through the preaching of your word. May your people be built up. May you bring back the wanderer. May you humble the proud. May you strengthen the weak. May you save the lost. All through the power of the gospel. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week, if you guys remember, we started our series in this letter, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we began in his greeting, which was verses 1 to 5. That's what we were walking through together last week. And as we begin this morning, what I would like to do is walk briefly through a review of last week And then we'll let that lead us into the layout of this morning's sermon. We'll read the text together, and then we'll begin walking through it. Because last week, we we covered a lot, because I was doing an overview of the letter, what things we're going to see, stuff like that. So I think it's very helpful that we do our overview. I'm sure you could hear those things again, and it'll help you to... uh, to see what we're going to be dealing with this morning as well. So last week, as we opened up this letter in Paul's greeting, verses 1 to 5, I handled the greeting and I did an overview of the whole letter with five questions. Remember those questions. They were, who are the Galatians? Why is Paul writing to the Galatians? What is the tone of the letter? What's Paul's tone to the Galatians? What is Paul's message to the Galatians? Question four. And then question five. Why does Galatians or the the message of Galatians still matter for us today? And what we saw as we walked through those five questions was that the Galatians were most likely, or the churches that the Galatians were a part of, were most likely the churches that Paul had planted during his first missionary journey as he had traveled through the southern part of Central Asia Minor, which was known as a province called Galatia. And that's why they were called the Galatian Christians. 
So that's who the Galatians were. And the reason why he was writing to the Galatians is because sometime afterward, Paul leaving, going elsewhere, false teachers had come in. They had infiltrated these this series or this region of churches and they began to deceive the Galatian Christians. And they began to believe what they were preaching to them, these false teachers. And so Paul is writing to confront this issue that's going on. And we saw that his primary tone in light of that is one of agitation because they are distorting the gospel of Christ. And the Galatians are believing it. So he is unhappy to hear about what's going on. So primarily, he's agitated as he writes this letter. He's unhappy. But we also, we looked and we saw that Paul also has a great desire and a love for these Christians to woo them back to the gospel, to call them back to freedom. So primarily agitation, but there's also love and pleading in Paul's voice as he writes to these Christians. And then his message, in short, is to tell the Galatians that there's only one gospel. There's only one. And he wants them to turn back to it. In short, that is his message to the Galatians. And in this part, in this question, question four, I did an overview of the book. We broke the book down into three sections uh, or parts. Part one being Paul versus, excuse me, chapters one to two, Paul defending the true gospel, the authority of his apostolicness, his apostleness, I guess you could say. He's defending his apostolic authority given to him directly from Christ, not from man or through man. And then chapters 3 and 4, he's arguing from Scripture that the Old Testament has always pointed forward to Christ. And then in 5 and 6, the the third and final part of the letter, Paul's going to be taking the truths that he's been saying in chapters 1 and 2 and in chapters 3 and 4, and he's going to apply it to the Galatians. That's three parts. And then I gave my purpose statement for the letter. And I want to read it to you again because my wife told me that I read it too fast last Sunday. She said, you read the purpose statement too fast. There's a lot of people that didn't get it. So So this is my purpose statement. Read it to you again for the letter. There is only one gospel. And that gospel teaches... You can only be justified before God by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Therefore, embrace the gospel and walk in the freedom it gives. That's the purpose statement that I have, that I gave last week for the letter. That's the purpose statement that we're going to continually be revisiting as we walk through this letter. And then the last question that we walked through last week was question five and why does the the message of Galatians still matter for us today? And we, we looked at a couple of ways that this 
letter still rings true for us, even today, 21st century. And through those five questions, we walked through the greeting, and then we did a whole overview of the letter. And now we come to verses 6 to 9. And in verses 6 to 9, this is what you would call Paul's initial rebuke. This is his initial rebuke to the Galatians and also to the false teachers who are present there deceiving the Galatians. And that's how we're going to handle this section of Scripture, these verses. We're going to be handling them in two parts. In verses 6 to 7, we're going to be looking specifically at Paul's rebuke to the Galatians. Primarily in those verses, he is directing his attention, his rebuke to the Galatian Christians and what they're doing. And then in verses 8 and 9, Paul kind of changes his direction and he turns his rebuke toward the false teachers and what they are doing. So verses 6 and 7... Paul's rebuke to the Galatians, verses 8 and 9, Paul's rebuke to the false teachers. So we'll read these verses together, and then we'll begin walking through them. And I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and I'll read down to verse 9. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised Him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, as we walk through these first couple of verses, looking at Paul's rebuke to the Galatians, the first thing I want to point out is that it's significant that Paul moves from his initial greeting in verses 1 to 5 directly to his rebuke in verses 6 to 9. Because normally, if you were to look at the other letters of Paul and what he wrote to the other churches, usually he moves from his initial greeting and then he gives something like a thanksgiving or a prayer. He, he says something or he names something that he's thankful for in these churches and then he may pray for them. Even in Corinthians, first and second Corinthians, you remember how bad the Corinthian church was, you know, the horrible things that were going on there. 
Paul still gives a thanksgiving and a prayer for those Christians. But not here. In Galatians. He doesn't do that. He goes directly from his greeting to giving his rebuke. He gets straight to the point. And this goes back to what we were talking about last week. The tone of Paul. You know, his unhappiness, his agitation that he has with this region of churches and what's going on there. Paul's not happy. And so he gets directly to the point, his rebuke to these Christians. And the first thing that he says to them in his rebuke is this. He says, I am astonished. Galatians. Galatian Christians. I am astonished or utterly amazed. Paul is utterly amazed at the Galatians. Now why? Why why does Paul start out using this language? Why is he so utterly amazed? Why is he so astonished with the Galatian Christians? He continues, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He says that he is astonished or that he is utterly amazed that you, Galatian Christians, are so quickly deserting. Quickly. The, The Galatian Christians are quickly turning from the gospel. Now we don't know how quickly. Paul doesn't give us the span of time or the time frame that all this is going down. But it's evident that there's not a whole lot of time from when Paul and the brothers in Christ that were with him went to the Galatian church initially, or churches, excuse me, went to these churches initially, proclaimed the gospel, planted these churches, and now them turning. There's not a whole lot of time going on here. And so Paul is utterly amazed that they would turn from the gospel so quickly. He's astonished at it. And I want you to notice how Paul says this. Yes, they're turning from the gospel, but what does he say there? After he says quickly. He says, so quickly deserting what? Or rather, who? Deserting who? Him. Who called you in the grace of Christ. So who is that referring to? God. The Galatian Christians are deserting God Himself in turning from the gospel of Christ. They are not only turning from a message, they're turning from God Himself. And what we see here is that God and the gospel are inseparable. You cannot remove God from the good news of the gospel or the message of the gospel. God Himself is the gospel. And some of the men, you may be familiar with that term, God is the gospel, because you guys were going through a series not too long ago with John Piper. uh, A series on God is the gospel. In the gospel, what you receive is the good news of Christ. 
and being restored into a relationship with God. God is the gospel. He is the essence of the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. If you remove God from the gospel, there's no good news, as we're going to see in a moment as we break this down a little bit more. So the Galatian Christians are deserting God. And that word deserting is an interesting word because it's it has a military meaning to it. Something like a soldier who changes or transfers his allegiance to this side of the enemy. You know, he walks the the battle line and goes over to the side of the enemy. That's what's going on here as he uses this word desert. The Galatian Christians are deserting God and they're transferring their allegiance over to the enemy because they're they're believing the lies of Satan. As Paul says, you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. They're turning to the lies of Satan. Because as Paul makes clear in verse 7, there is no other gospel. He says not that there is another one, not that there is another gospel. So what you're turning to is not a gospel at all. It is just a distortion of the true gospel. It's lies, ultimately from Satan, who is the the father of lies. And the ones that are, are troubling them, the false teachers, they are the ones that are doing this. And we talked a little bit about them last week. The, these people that Paul says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. These false teachers were most likely the, the Judaizers. That's what they were called. So we don't know for sure, but most likely that's who they were. These people, these false teachers were known for coming in behind the apostles, like the Apostle Paul, after they had planted these churches, proclaimed the gospel, the, the free grace gospel of Christ. They would later come in and they would seek to distort the gospel. They would seek to change it up a little bit. And they would seek to deceive the Christians in that way. And some of the ways that they would do this is they would agree in part with Paul's message. We need to know that. False teachers usually and primarily, I'd say 99% of the time, they're not going to walk through the back door and have a shirt on that says, I'm a false teacher, believe me. It doesn't work that way. They know that they're trying to deceive people. And so they're going to use language that's sneaky, that's believable. And that's what they were doing to these Christians, these Galatian Christians. They probably came in and in part agreed with the message that Paul had preached, the gospel that Paul had preached, probably saying something along the lines of, yeah, we believe what Paul says about Christ. You know, you need to believe in Christ. Christ is the Messiah. He has come to to forgive us of our sins. He's the Messiah. He died for our sins. You need Christ. But, but, you know, then they start adding things. Yes, you need Christ. 
But also, you need to be circumcised as well. You know, you still need those things. Maybe saying something along the lines of, you know, we've been worshiping God, you know, for thousands of years. A long time, Galatians. You know, we know what we're doing. You know, listen to us. Yeah, Paul's right, but we got, you know, we got some inside information that he may not have. So you, you, you need circumcision. You need to, to follow some of these guidelines that the law gives. You need those things. Christ has paid for, let's say, half. He's paid for half. You doing this, you know, that kind of, that brings in the other half. You know, you, you finish what Christ has done. Well, the moment you say that, you have completely done away with the gospel of Christ. You have completely done away with it. Because once you try to add or take away from what Christ has done, the gospel itself is destroyed. Because what did Christ say whenever He was crucified on the cross, right before He died? He said, it is finished. It's finished. There's nothing to add, right? So let's just say, you know, let's come up with another situation. Let's say that uh, these false teachers said, you know, Christ paid for 99.9%, like Lysol, you know, 99.9% of your sins. And you just need this other little smidget of a percentage. You know, you just need that one little bit. You know, you, you get circumcised, you're, you're in. You know, you're, you have done what is lacking in Christ. Or if you keep this part of the law, these food laws, or whatever, if you stay away from this, this stuff, you know, whatever, if you follow the law in this, in this way, you know, that makes up for that one little part that Christ didn't do. You still can't do it. If all you had to accomplish on your part now was just that little bitty part. You know, Christ did 99.9% and all you had was just a little bit. You couldn't do it. You're still condemned. Because what does the Bible show us over and over again throughout the whole text of Scripture? All of it. There is no one righteous. No, not one. You can find that in the Psalms. You can find that in Romans. As Paul's laying that out in the first few chapters of Romans chapters 1 to 3, there is no one righteous. No, not one. You cannot justify yourself before God. And that's what the, the false Christians were saying, uh, the false teachers were saying, the Judaizers. They were taking justification, which is being declared righteous before God, they were taking that and they were mixing it with sanctification, which is a result of justification. In Christ, we receive justification for sin completely. When, when Christ said, it is finished, and you put your trust in Christ... You're justified, declared righteous. If this was a courtroom and you were to stand before God, you're guilty, like we just said. You stand before Him guilty. And if you were to plead Christ, I plead Christ. 
I'm unworthy. I, there's nothing in me that can attain righteousness. There's nothing in me that can do this. I plead Christ. In that moment, God hits the gavel and He says, Righteous. You are righteous. And He looks at you from that moment on as He looks at His own Son. The result of that is then sanctification. You work because God has done a work in you. Right? Because God has justified you in Christ and all that Christ has done for you, the result of that is that you then work. Justification, declared righteous, that's done, over with. There's nothing you can add to that. The result is then you then work. The false teachers were saying that sanctification played a part in your justification. Does that make sense? So, in other words, your works played a huge part or they were necessary for you to be declared righteous, which is absolutely wrong. You say that and you're guilty of what Paul is saying here. You are distorting the gospel. You work because of what God has done for you. The moment you start saying to yourself or say to somebody else, these works add to your justification, your right standing with God, then you've, you've blown up the whole gospel. You've blown it all to pieces. Christ means nothing to you because you're working. You know, you're adding to what He's done. Your works. You being here in church right now, if you consider that a work, then you're adding that to your justification. If you say to yourself, you know, I go to church because I want to be right with God, you know, that counts as my right standing with God, then you're adding to Christ and what He's done for you. You are here and you follow Christ because of what He's done for you, His works for you. So we must get that straight. We need to understand that. Justification is what God has done for you. You do not deserve it. It is grace. Him giving to you what you do not deserve. Sanctification is the result of that. God justifies you. You therefore then work. So the, the false teachers were, they were mixing this in. And remember, they were doing this in a way that they were believing it. They're being deceived. They are believing these lies. And now at this point, you know, we're talking a lot about the gospel. I'm throwing the word gospel around. So I just want to quickly give a definition of what the gospel is. So we are all clear what the gospel is. And the way that I want to do this is I want to walk through four things. And some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with them. It's God, mankind, Jesus Christ, our response. I'm sure some of you have heard that. Or they're also known as four questions. To whom are we accountable? First question. What is our problem? Second question. What is the solution? Third question. And then the fourth question is, how can we be a part of that solution? Or how can we be included in the solution? So let's just walk through these very quickly. God. Now why is it important to start with God? 
everything begins with God, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning, God. Therefore, that answers the question, to whom are we accountable? You know, who do we answer to? We answer to God because He is your Maker. He's your Creator. He made you and everything else. You will stand before God on the last day. No one else. You are accountable to God. You get that wrong? There's no need for a gospel. You know, you get your accountability to God wrong, which is what atheists would like to do, you know, people who deny the existence of God, you get that wrong, you, you don't need a gospel. You, you know, you can do whatever you want. There's really no purpose. Nobody made us. Nobody made this world. There's no expectations upon us. You, you remove God from the picture and it's all lost. So you must begin with God. We are accountable to God. He made us. He is our King. We are accountable to to Him. Next, mankind. Or the question, what is our problem? Well, God has made us. And from what Genesis chapter 3 tells us, we have, in fact, failed to keep the expectations of God, which is honoring and delighting in Him in all things. We have in fact in our ancestor Adam, when he fell in Genesis chapter 3, we have in fact all rejected God. We have all rejected Him. That's our problem. That's where sin comes from. We reject God. God brings the curse on creation. This is the problem. You tamper with the problem, then you lose the gospel. And from what the Bible teaches us, we are, in our sin, completely helpless. Completely helpless. There's nothing that you can do to help yourself. You can create no solution to the problem. You are totally depraved. You start saying that there's some good in me, and all I need is something to help me get that good out, you don't need Christ. That's self-help. Prosperity preaching. That's what prosperity preaching is. Or self-help preaching. You know, you're good. And my goal is just to make you feel good. So that good can come out. But the Bible doesn't teach that. You are totally depraved. You need an outside source to help you. So that's our problem. Now what's the solution? You know, if we're helpless, if we can't save ourselves, what's the solution? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the solution. He is the outside source that comes in and saves us from what we cannot save ourselves from, which is our sin. That's why He had to die on the cross for our sins. That's why He lived for us, perfection, you know, the perfect life. That's why He died for us, taking our sins upon Himself, as we're going to see later on in Galatians. He became a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. He became a curse for us so that we could receive righteousness. 
Jesus Christ takes our problem, our sin, on Himself and He pays for it. He's a propitiation for us. He not only takes our sin upon us, but He pays the punishment that we deserve, God's wrath. On the cross, He took God's wrath for us so that you don't have to. Because of Christ, you don't have to take the punishment of sin. He's paid it for you. And then He rose from the grave to prove that everything that He said was true. And now He reigns in glory and will come back once again. That's a solution. The only solution. The only solution. Jesus Christ Himself said, as you well know, most of you, if, you, if not all of you, I am the way. The truth, the life. No one comes to the Father, gets back to God. Reconciliation with God. Nobody comes to the Father but through me in what I do, what I accomplish for you. He is the only solution. Once you start saying that, yes, Jesus Christ paid for our sins, but there are also many other ways to get right with God, you've lost the gospel. You have lost the good news of Christ. Now, lastly, how are we included in this solution? You know, what is, what's our response to this solution? How are we included? Well, God expects for us to, to rely on what He has done for us. That's what faith is. I know faith can kind of be a mysterious word. You know, what is faith? Mystical. You know, I, I need faith, whatever that is, wherever it's at. You know, I need faith. And that was actually one of the hardest things when I became a Christian. Faith, understanding faith and what it was, what it is, that was the hardest thing for me to understand. I remember Mike and I, we would have uh, conversations on his front porch. Hours. Just me trying to figure out what does it mean to have faith in Christ. Just because I had heard all of these other things about faith. Faith is reliance. It is trust. So if you have faith in something, like right now, for example, you have faith that the pew you're sitting in is going to not break, right? You sat down with total faith, reliance, trust that when you sat down, it's going to hold your weight. It's not going anywhere. Okay? I'm standing on this platform having faith that it's not going to break on me. You know, whatever. You can put whatever you want to in the blanks. Well, when you put your faith in Christ, what you're doing is you're saying, I can't save myself, God. I put my trust, my reliance, not in what I can do, but in what Christ does for me. So you stand on Christ. That's where your faith is at. You don't stand on yourself. You don't stand on some other people. Or something else. You stand on Christ alone. He alone is worthy and or trustworthy enough to save me from my sins. And that's why I put my trust in Him alone. You know, He can hold me up and take me through the judgment because of what He's done for me. And the way that you respond is by putting your faith, your trust in Christ, and also through repentance. You know, they are together. You cannot 
separate the two. Repentance and faith. Faith and repentance. Because when you turn to Christ, you're turning from something else. When you turn from Christ, you're saying, I don't want to live for myself anymore. I don't trust in myself anymore. So I turn from that to Jesus. Now that's not perfect. You know, you're not perfect in that moment. Repentance continually works itself out. But there is an initial repentance that plays out when you turn to Christ. You are saying, I don't want this anymore. I don't want it. I don't want sin. I don't want what I once loved. I want Christ. He is what is beautiful to me. I delight in Him. Not in me. Not in these worldly things. So you turn from that old way of life to Christ initially. And then, you know, throughout the course of your Christian life, all of that works out. But that, that's the gospel. And we need to be clear on that. Christian, are you grounded in the gospel? Because if you're not grounded in that, then you will be like the Galatians who deserted it, or some of them anyways. Maybe some of them ended up not deserting it. Maybe this letter wooed them back. But if you're not grounded in the gospel, you know how are you not going to be deceived when somebody comes in with a serpent's tongue and deceives you with... A gospel that sounds 99.9% like the true gospel. How are you going to know the difference if you're not grounded in the gospel? And I want to ask specifically the leaders of this church, elders and deacons, are you consistently a student of the gospel? Are you consistently grounding yourself in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because as a leader of the church, you are given the responsibility by God to lead others. So let's say that the Lord Jesus Christ was to come into this church and He wants to know know, how the church is, the state of the church, what's going on. Who do you think He's going to come to first? He's coming to the leaders of the church, isn't He? Where's the leaders of the church at? What's the state of this church, leaders? How's the gospel doing in your church? Now, he's coming to you too, Christian. He's going to come ask you as well. But he's coming to the leaders first. So leaders, elders, deacons, you need to make sure that you are grounded and know the gospel well. Can you defend it, brothers? from those who would seek to distort it and destroy it. We need to know and understand the gospel. Now let's move on to Paul's rebuke to the false teachers, verses 8 and 9. He goes on to say, So there are some who are distorting the gospel, who want to distort it. But, but, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, Let him be accursed. If anyone comes in and seeks to distort the gospel, if they preach a gospel different from what we just walked through together with the the God-man Christ response, if anybody seeks to teach something different than that or from what Paul 
originally taught here in the Word of God, Paul says they should be accursed. And he even says, he comes up with this situation that's kind of hard to believe. He says, but even if we, you know, if I and the brothers who were with me who came originally, if we come back and for whatever reason preach a different gospel from the first time, let us be accursed. Let us, let me be accursed. The message makes the preacher. The preacher does not make the message. Let us understand that. And then he also, he brings up an angel. You know, what's more believable than an angel from heaven, right? Let's say an angel was to descend from heaven right now and all the splendor and majesty. Behold, all's chapel, I bring to you a new gospel. What are you going to say? Let you be accursed, angel. Get out of here. We don't want anything to do with it. Let you be accursed and you take your so-called gospel with you. And all your splendor and all your majesty, let you be accursed. Let damnation be upon you. Which is what Paul is calling on here when he uses that word accursed. The word literally means anathema. He is calling upon God's destruction. Let God's destruction be upon the person who would distort the gospel of Christ. And I want to bring out specifically Mormonism at this point. Because Mormonism is a plain example, clear example of an angel giving revelation to someone and distorting the gospel. Joseph Smith, in the mid-1800s, if I remember correctly, received revelation from God, supposedly from God, that all, the, all, the, all the denominations were corrupt at that time, and that he was to start the true denomination. And then he went on to further receive revelation from this angel Moroni, who would show him what was true in the Bible and was not true in the Bible. But what does Paul say? Let Moroni be accursed. Let Moroni be damned. He's preaching another gospel. Don't listen to Moroni or any other angel from heaven that tells you something different from what I have preached to you or that we have preached to you, brothers. This, this also can bring some confusion because we, we may think, you know, Paul, is that really necessary, man? I mean, do you really need to bring all that out? You know, is it necessarily appropriate to call damnation down on these people? You know, is it really that big of a deal? If we think that, then we need to really immerse ourselves and think deeply on what it means to distort the gospel. If you distort the gospel, then people are lost and they are not saved. If the gospel is distorted, there is no good news. If the gospel is distorted, people cannot know how to be saved. They won't know their Savior. They will face damnation for all eternity if the gospel is distorted. That's what's on the line here. And that's why Paul 
says this curse upon whoever would distort it. And then, just to make sure that he's clear and plain, he repeats what he's just said. He says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So let us make sure that we are grounded in the gospel, that we know the gospel, and let us make sure that the gospel we proclaim, that you share with other people, is this gospel. Because some, you know, sometimes people don't like to hear the gospel. You know, it's very easy to, to leave out the wrath part, right? You know, the problem. You know, when you tell somebody they're totally depraved and they can't help themselves, they're probably not going to like it. You know, I come, up, I come across situations where people are dying as a pastor, and I'm sure some of you have too. You, know, you come across a person who's lost, they're dying. They don't want you to tell them in that moment that they can't help themselves, that they're totally depraved. They don't want you to tell them that if they don't receive Christ, God's going to pour out His wrath on them for all eternity. They don't want you to tell them that. But you must if you want to proclaim the gospel because that's what makes the good news so good, right? What it saves you from. So please don't leave that out. You know, just telling somebody that God has a wonderful plan for your life, that's not the gospel. Yes, God does have a wonderful plan for your life, but there's so much more to it than what's in that phrase. Because we as sinful human beings say, oh yeah, God wants to make me rich. He wants to make me popular or loved in this life. Now, we can easily manipulate wonderful life, but that's not, that's not what it means. God's wonderful plan, wonderful life for you is not in this world. It's in glory with His Son. So please, Alt Chapel, let us get the gospel right and proclaim the one true gospel so that people may know it and know Christ through it. Father, we come and we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for Paul who did not give way to these false teachers. He steadfastly proclaimed the Gospel of Christ. He did not give way. He was not a man-pleaser as we're going to see in a little bit later throughout the letter. Father, we thank You for the example of the Apostle Paul, and may we follow in his example. May we be grounded in the gospel, and may that be what we proclaim, the true, the one and only gospel of Christ. And if there is somebody here this morning that does not know that gospel, then I pray that you would draw them to it by your sovereign grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.